Would you join me? Let's pray together, asking the Spirit to be our teacher. Father, we thank you so much for this time to where you meet us in your word. We thank you that your word is alive, that it's not a dead word on the page, that it is supernatural because it's living and active. It judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart and our spirit. And Lord, I, am, I think of Psalm 95, where the psalmist says, today if you hear his voice, and where do we hear your voice? We hear it in the scriptures. So today if we hear your voice, your word says, let us not harden our hearts as our fathers did in the past. So I do pray for soft hearts on my part and on all of our parts as we hear from you. And so, Father, illumine us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask if you are able to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 8, as we are continuing through this pillar chapter of the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we've been working our way through Romans chapter 8, picture a new exodus. You've been freed from Egypt. You've been freed from the Egypt of sin and hell and death. You've been brought before Mount Sinai to where you have heard of a new role of the law. The law that is actually fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So you have died to the law and through your union with Christ have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law because of Jesus' fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And now you're in the wilderness and where are you headed? You're headed to the promised land. And if you picture the Exodus, what led the people of God, the Israelites, in the wilderness to the promised land, but the glory cloud hovering over the tabernacle as a cloud by day and a fire by night. And we have the fulfillment of that which it foreshadowed and that which it anticipated. We have the actual glory cloud, the Holy Spirit leading us to the promised land. And so we've been talking about the ministry and the nature and the character and the role of the Holy Spirit from this pillar chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And we've been studying, asking ourselves the question, how do I actually experience God? Not just know about him, so that, not just that he's information or that he's a theory or an abstract concept. 
But how do I actually come to know him, to experience him? It's like Jesus said in the Gospel of John in his high priestly prayer. When he prayed to the Father and he said, now this is eternal life. Now I don't know about you, but I kind of wake up when I read something like that. Like pay attention now. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we've said that the Holy Spirit is the key to making God real, to experiencing God. And we've been focusing on the fact that the Spirit's main business is to show us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And how he goes about this main business, this central function, how he goes about doing it, is by making real to our hearts the person and work of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit's main function is to show us the love and the grace and the goodness and the beauty and the truth and the justice, the salvation, and the over-the-top generosity that is given to us through Jesus Christ. I remember a woman in our church in Oklahoma who wanted to impact or have it kind of as her mission uh, to move in such a way as to imitate the Holy Spirit by making real, making tangible in other people's lives this over-the-top love and generosity of Christ. And she did so once in our lives. She had heard one time, this is when I was pastoring in Oklahoma, and she heard that I was actually coming to Florida for a doctor of ministry class at RTS Orlando. And so she had heard that, and she wanted to bless our family. She wanted to make real and display to us the love and the generosity of Christ. So Joel was nine years old, and she provided for Evie and Joel plane tickets, housing, tickets, the motel, everything, to an all-expense-paid trip to Disney World. You could ask Evie to this day what the most generous gift she's ever received. And if you ask this person, she would say her only motive was to display. She says, I can't even touch a thumbnail of the generosity of Christ. Not a bad mission to have in life, don't you think? Now, last week we saw that the Spirit shows us that nothing can separate us from the love of God by testifying directly with our spirits that we are children of God. And we looked at the security that comes from the reality that we are sons and daughters of God, that God is our Father, that He won't lose us and we can't lose Him. Verse 16 ended with the Spirit bearing witness, the inner testimony of the Spirit, that we are children of God. And then, of course, there's verse 17. Don't you ever wish sometimes Bible verses would kind of stop? Like, full stop, drop the mic. I would kind of love it right at that point. Because verse 17 goes on, and the first part is fine. It says, if we're God's children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, there's the part I want full stop. But it goes on to have this other phrase in it. And we're kind of tempted to gloss over it. It says, provided, uh-oh, you can almost hear the, you feel it in your, in your soul kind of build up at that point. Provided we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. So now I want to press into this a little bit this morning, and I want to try to be real practical. 
How do we actually actualize in our lives, taken the reality of the fact that we must, it's not a matter of if, but we must suffer with Jesus. If we're an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, we must suffer with him. We need a discipline in our lives, and that discipline is called hope. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of hope. See, it is through hope that we can actually actualize these realities. And so part of the Holy Spirit's role, and this is what we're focusing on in verses 18 to 27 this morning, is to help us to cultivate hope in order that we may experience God, in order that He might become more real to us. So how does this passage teach us? the spirit of hope. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at our need of hope. We're going to look at the comprehensive scope of hope. And finally, we're going to look at the fruit of hope in our lives. First of all, the need of hope. Now, Paul moves in this passage from the present ministry of the Spirit to the future glory of God's children. Look with me at verse 23. And he says, not only... So, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, what is the first fruits of the Spirit? It's the beginning of the harvest. Jesus is the first fruits of a new creation. Now, what prompts Paul to make this change in focus? How does this kind of build his argument? How does this logically flow to serve his case? Well, if you think about it, think about it in our lives, and especially in non-Christians' lives, one of those practical issues that can hinder our experience of being assured that nothing can separate us from the love of God is the reality of suffering. One of the most common questions asked today by people considering Christianity is, why do bad things happen in the world? If God is so powerful, doesn't he have the power to stop all the injustice and all the pain? And if God is so good and loving, doesn't he love us enough to stop all the suffering in the world. David Cassidy, in his book, Indispensable, calls this the problem of pain. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Paul ends the previous section in verse 17 by saying, now if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. What Paul is doing, alluding to suffering and glory, ending the previous section, and now suffering and glory become the theme throughout this section as he is addressing the issue of suffering and hope for the children of God. Now, how does Paul go about addressing this intensely practical issue? Why is it we need hope? Well, the first reason why is that Paul tells us that suffering and glory go together. They are absolutely welded together. They are married. They cannot be divorced. They cannot be broken apart. And that is because suffering and glory characterize the two basic ages of history, this age and the age to come. The two basic things, this age, that is opposed to God, his ways, his will, his agenda is characterized by suffering. And the world to come, thy kingdom come, is characterized by righteousness and holiness and goodness and beauty and truth. And so he wants us to know that suffering and glory, think about the life of Jesus. 
Okay, Jesus' life went from humiliation to exaltation. He didn't immediately go resurrection and glory. Something had to happen first, did it not? Not only his death, but the entirety of his incarnation, his, lead, his laying glory aside, his pushing away power, his giving away power in order to come to earth, to enter our world, to walk in our shoes, and to live life under our conditions, culminating in his death and his cross. The entirety of his life was a movement from suffering to glory. Now we are the children of God. Why are we thinking we can immediately kind of go, life, okay, white picket fence, nice things, yeah, I might have a few bumps in the road, and then glory. That's kind of not how it works. It didn't work that way for Jesus, and it won't work that way for us. But look with me at verse 18. Because Paul wants to also show that the sufferings and glory cannot be compared. He says, for I consider, and this is powerful, when he says, for I consider, he's expressing a firm conviction reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel. Meaning he's thinking it out, he's reasoning it out, and he's saying if the gospel is true, here are the implications of it. And of course, if we have a small, reduced, truncated gospel that it's only forgiveness or it's only justification or it's only adoption or it's only any of these things and we don't have a comprehensive gospel when we begin to think it out we're not going to reason like Paul does and say for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, suffering and glory are inseparable, but they are not even comparable. They can be contrasted, but they can't even be compared. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis says, Heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even agony into a glory. Let me read that again. Are we sure we got that? Listen carefully to that. Heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even agony into a glory. Paul is saying, stop and think. Reason out the implications of the gospel. He wants us to know that the way you handle your present, as Tim Keller defines hope, is completely determined by what you believe your future to be. And what is your future to be? It is a glory so incomparable with the presence that even your present agony is going to be turned into a glory. And why is that practical? Because we need to cultivate that in our life in order to handle our present. So friends, that's the first point. We absolutely need hope. But look with me more. Look at the comprehensive scope of hope. Look with me at verses 20 through 22, where he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, meaning God, who subjected it, notice the words again, in hope that the creation itself 
will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, this is an amazing section of Scripture right here. Because do you hear what this is saying? First of all, it's saying for the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, the creation, as we look at it now, now as we look at it now, it's pretty glorious, isn't it? I mean, go to the beach this afternoon. Take a trip to the mountains. Look at Google Earth and start looking at various beautiful, absolutely wondrous places on the earth and see the majesty and the magnificence of God's cosmos, of God's grace, of God's creation. Buy a telescope and start looking into the skies and look at the stars and the planets and the cosmos. And do you recognize that that is a cosmos, that is a creation, that is right now in slavery, in bondage? It hasn't been set free yet. It hasn't reached its full potential. It hasn't come and been liberated yet. And what it can't wait for is for you and I, the children of God, to attain to glory. That the creation right now is in bondage because of sin. And when Adam fell and when we sinned, God subjected it in futility and it is now groaning like in the pains of childbirth waiting for the emergence of the new order. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the Grand Canyon to really be the Grand Canyon. Or for my love of golf, I can't wait for Augusta National to really be Augusta National. Or for colors. Have you ever seen bright colors, yellows and oranges and reds? Some of us like to go to New England and see the foliage. That is foliage in bondage right now. And why is Paul telling us this? Because he is saying, this is in hope. He is saying, stretch your mind. Your mind is too small. Your gospel is too little. Your Jesus is too little. This is creation subjected to bondage. Listen to the Psalms. We had Al read earlier from Psalm 96. And imagine... The worship leader, the song leader, because the Psalms are the worship book of the Old Testament, standing up and saying, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord. Why? Because he comes. The psalmist didn't know the name Jesus of Nazareth, but he was able to look ahead and say, God himself is going to come to this earth to do what? To judge the earth, which means more than just punish it. It means put the world to rights. The emergence of a new order that the creation is actually groaning. Like in the pains of childbirth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the people in equity. And verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The scope of our hope, the scope of God's salvation is the renewal of all things. And that is meant to cultivate hope for us. See, this is the positive aspect to this liberation. It will be liberated into the glorious freedom, get this, of the children of God. I love how John Stott puts it. He says, God's creation will share in the glory of God's children, which is itself the glory of Christ. 
Do you recognize the cosmic scope of the gospel and the cosmic hope that that brings us? That's part of what the Spirit is doing in your life, is getting you to recognize and realize that and cultivate that. Lastly, what, is so, what difference does this make in our lives? What is some of the fruit of this hope? Now, I want you to notice the transition from verses 22 to 23. Verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation, and then he's bringing it back in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves. So the transition back from creation to us, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Meaning we no longer live in Adam, we live in Christ. We are no longer governed or under the dominion or domain of Adam and the flesh and sin. As we saw in Romans 7, that Adamic nature, that sinful nature still influences us, and it influences us greatly, but we're no longer under its cosmic rule and reign. We no longer live in Adam, we live in Christ, and we no longer live according to the flesh, we live according to the Spirit. And so Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit, like a down payment, a foretaste, an inauguration of the new creation, which is the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying we continue to groan inside ourselves as we long for, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies, and he's saying, so here's your situation, here's your context as Christians. He's saying there's a tension between what God has inaugurated in our lives by giving us the Spirit and what he will one day complete or consummate in our full adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This is what is meant by the term already and not yet. We already have a foretaste of the life of come with all its joy and its shalom and its well-being, but we live in the context of a fallen world. We live in the context with a fallen world with all its decay, emptiness, and alienation. That being our situation, that being our reality, what fruit ought it produce and what difference ought it make in our lives? Well, let me just mention a couple. First, if we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of a new creation, and the new creation and the first fruits, the Spirit is supernatural, our life ought to have a supernatural touch, a supernatural air, a supernatural reality about it. What have we been saying as we've been going through Romans chapter 8? The Spirit does not come in to us like we're the Motel 6 and we'll leave our light on and he'll come out as a visitor. I think I'll stay for the weekend and then I'm out. He takes up permanent residence within the life of the believer, bringing the reality of the age to come, the realm of the Spirit, the realm of Jesus Christ, into the believer's life. Not as a visitor, but permanently. Which means our life ought to be looking more like that of Jesus Christ. Our life ought to have the air of supernaturalness about it. There should be a supernaturalness to our living. Our lives ought to be marked and characterized by a cultivating, a growing, we certainly don't have our acts together, but a growing in supernatural power. It should exhibit a touch of heaven. There should be a touch of heaven in the way we love each other 
in the way we move into each other's lives, in the way we speak into each other's lives, in the way we enter into each other's lives. In Galatians 5, this is why I quote it, because this is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control ought to characterize our lives. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit. And notice, the Spirit's supernatural. That means we ought to have supernatural love and supernatural joy and supernatural peace and patience. See, there's all of those we could look at that and say, naturally, our temperament, our personality, is we may lean more towards this way. Some might say, well, I'm naturally kind, but I don't have much self-control. I think we all say, well, none of us naturally have patience. You know, we have all these. But Paul here is talking about the first fruits of the Spirit, and the Spirit in our life having a supernatural character. So take supernatural love. And what is supernatural love? Well, think about it. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the end of Matthew chapter 5, talked about supernatural love. He says, what reward is it to you? If you love your friends, if you love those who are just like you. He says, but you should love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Have you ever thought about what supernatural love might look like in the life of a Christian today? That... See, it's natural love to love somebody who's exactly like you, who thinks like you, who looks like you, who talks like you, has the same attitudes, same ideas, the same. <clears throat> Everything's exactly the same. That's easy. Try loving somebody who's completely different from you, who maybe thinks differently culturally, differently politically, differently in various aspects. Does your life have a touch of supernaturalness to it. Is your life growing in that? Secondly, having a taste of heaven, these first fruits also ought to give us an authenticity to our present lives. That is because of having the first fruits of the Spirit, we know our eyes are open to the realities of life, and our eyes are open to the fact that life is not the way it is supposed to be. Thus we truly groan inwardly, ache and long as we wait for the coming of the kingdom. One thing there should not be in the life of any Christian is any pretending. We do not promise a pie in the sky, everything will be okay, existence in the world. Suffering is real. And one thing that should mark the life of the Christian is suffering in our own lives or in other lives ought never to be discounted or diminished. Life in a fallen world is difficult and hard. And if we're going to move from suffering to glory, we ought never to discount or diminish our own or other suffering. Spiritual fruit means authenticity. When Jesus, the omniscient and omnipotent one, God in the flesh, came and met Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing as God in the flesh he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. What did he do? He paused to weep. Authentically entering into the fallenness of the world to scream and to cry out. He groaned over the horror and tragicness and pain of death. Weeping over the fact that death is not the way this world is supposed to be. 
We ought to be authentic and never settle for pretending in our lives. And lastly, how's all this going to work itself out? Does it just happen automatically? Do we just wake up one morning and poof, supernatural power like osmosis? You ever thought about how verses 26 and 27 actually fit in with the context of the whole passage? Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, if we're thinking contextually, you should be going, oh yeah, my weakness, I don't handle suffering very well. I don't display supernatural fruit very well. I don't always really display natural fruit, let alone supernatural fruit. All these things ought to be bringing up our weakness. But look at the promise. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. There is a primal passion about the Spirit's entering in your life, entering into your weakness to teach you to pray according to the will of God. How practical does this get? That this is talking about prayer, but not any type of prayer. It has to have a certain quality of prayer. Look at what the Spirit does. He intercedes for us. And how does he intercede? Verse 27 says, He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And what is the will of God? 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 puts it this way. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. So what is the Spirit interceding for us? What is the Holy Spirit interceding for you right now with groaning too deep for words? In other words, he cares more passionately about the good of your soul than you do. He is with inexpressible groans wanting us to fall in love with Christ. Wanting us to love Jesus as he loves Jesus and as the Father loves Jesus. We have consistently said that the Spirit's central function is to bring glory to Jesus by mediating to us, manifesting to us the presence and the reality of all that Jesus has done for us. So here in prayer is the Spirit interceding for us to know that Jesus has been, he's died and he's been resurrected to bring us into new life, that he's entered heaven so that one day we will experience perfection at every level of existence. And the Spirit's interceding so that you will consider, you will be able to face your sufferings with authenticity, without denial, without pretending. You will not dismiss or discount the pain, but you will be able to say, one day, because of the ruling, reigning Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, the world's true Lord... I will experience perfection at every level of experience. How do we have the fruit of hope? We gaze at Christ. I don't know about you, but I need hope so much. I can't just have little tidbits of Christ. I can't just take a little pick here and a little pick there at some timeless truths of Jesus. I need to be captured by the comprehensiveness and the fullness and the weightiness of the glory of Christ. And isn't it amazing we want to know what the Spirit is doing. How about He's praying for us? How's that for practical? How about we trust that the Spirit is interceding for us to manifest to you that Jesus has defeated death and decay? That we look around us and we see all the death and decay of the world, all the alienation, all the loneliness, and Jesus came to the earth 
to have it all absorbed into himself in his life and in his death, and then he was raised and ascended to glory so that we may know that he won, and in him we've won. That won't cause us to escape suffering, but it can cause us to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this world are not to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. Father, teach us to be authentic cultivators of hope, to not deny or dismiss or discount our pain, to be able to look honestly at it, to be more real and honest, to even, even as we prayed in our confession, search me and know my heart. I pray, Father, that you would expose to us the areas where, we're, where we suppress, where we're in denial, where we hide from, where we avoid, where we run from, rather than facing the realities of life. Help us to see that all our denial, all our avoidance, all our suppression, when we're doing that, we're really not believing the fullness of the gospel. And it's undercutting the ministry and the cultivation of what you could be doing, cultivating faith, hope, and love in our lives. So, Father, as the Spirit is interceding with inexpressible groans, Father, may we cooperate with His work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.